0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you find your way to the New Testament book of Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10. We're going to read the closing verses of that chapter. There's a little encapsulated uh, occurrence that happens here. And so uh, we have our context set for us in the verses that we'll be reading Luke 10, 38 through 42. I like to give a title to a message to kind of encapsulate the, the thought that is there. And this one I titled, Making Jesus' Short List. What is it that makes it onto Jesus' short list? We're going to find out in this text today. Uh, Luke 10, 38. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about, much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Let's pray and ask God to open our eyes to His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and first and foremost, we just want to acknowledge that You are God, that You are the One who sits on the throne of the universe, and You overrule everything else that goes on in the affairs of mankind. And Father, this day we come to worship You, to sit at Your feet, to hear Your Word. We don't come to question you in an inquisition. We don't come to scrutinize you, but we come, Lord, to be taught by you and to admire and adore you. And so, Father, I pray that through the teaching of your word this morning that you would give us the attention span that we need to focus on your word. Father, I pray that all the activities of the past week and all the events of the coming week would fade into the background as you emerge into the forefront of our thinking. I pray that you would arrest our attention and that you would get to yourself the worship you so rightly deserve. Lord, may I be a help and not a hindrance to that end this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we would all agree that the words that Jesus spoke while on earth are of extreme importance, will we not? I would I would go on to say that there is somewhat of a crescendo in the revelation of God that reaches its climactic point at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you recall Hebrews chapter 1, God in sundry times in divers manners spoke uh, by the prophets unto the fathers hath now in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. And it goes on to say, hey, give heed to that, pay attention to that, don't let that slip Uh, because it'll be very detrimental. And so as you think about the revelation of God, we understand that God was revealing himself in times past through uh, angel appearances, through prophets of old, through other messengers. But then God came to earth to give us the revelation of himself. Jesus said in John 1, I believe it's verse, uh, verse 18, that he came to declare The Father, And so think about that. We have this this crescendo building in this climactic point when Jesus is on the planet and he is speaking the very words of God to us. And I would go on to say that out of the volume of Jesus's teachings, there are some statements that are of greater imperativeness. I'm not saying some of his statements are more important than others. I'm saying some of them are more imperative to us. Think about this. I say that not based on my own opinion or valuation, but I say it in observation of how he categorized some of his statements. Sometimes he would use this emphatic singularity. Uh, Remember, he made this statement. This is the first and great commandment. If Jesus is saying that, I want to know what that commandment is, right? If it's the first, if it's the one, it is first in rank, first in place. If you're going to line them up and put them on a list, this one comes first. And it's the great one, it's the biggest one. Then I would say that that's imperative for you and I to know. And then you think about other statements that Jesus made. Like uh, when he looked at the rich young ruler and he beholding him, loved him and said unto him one thing. Thou lackest. If Jesus looks at me and says one thing, there's one thing that you're missing, I'm going to pay attention. I want to know what comes next. If Jesus has qualified a statement, one thing, then I would say it would behoove you and I to tune in and see what that one thing is. How about the statement he made in John 17 verse 3? This is life eternal. Whatever comes next, I need to know. This is life eternal. I need to know what is life eternal. And he went on to answer that statement that they may know thee the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are some statements that Jesus qualified himself. And we find one such statement this morning. He says, I believe in verse 40. But one thing is needful. Maybe I have the wrong verse. I'm away from my Bible. 42. One thing is needful. One thing is absolutely necessary. Jesus has just qualified a statement that tells you and I that there is a singular solitary uh, instrument here that is so important to you and I as disciples that we don't need to miss it. And so let's tune our attention in. Let's give God our attention this morning. Let's look and see what is this one thing because human nature has its tendency to prioritize whatever's biggest in our life at this time. And so if we just ask, what's the one thing that you need this morning? There may be somebody here who has a health scare. and They say, the one thing for me is cancer. And there may be some people who have got news of a layoff and they have debt that is looming over and the one thing for them may be financial. And there may be some people here who are going through the pains of a relationship that is struggling. And your one thing would have to do with that relationship. And that's where we've got to defer to God and to God's word. And let the Lord Jesus Christ tell us what is the one thing that is needful. One thing that's more important than any big items that are on my list in life right now. One thing is needful. What is it that Jesus classifies as this all-important essential of life uh, for this disciple? Well, to get to that, we need to unpack the text, right? Uh, I know your pastor, and I know that he's a Bible preacher, and I know that he's taught you that without context, there is no text. Uh, Because if we remove a text from its context, it becomes a pretext for whatever the speaker wants to say. And so let's back up a minute. I hope I got you on the hook uh, after Thanksgiving. And so let's, let's back up a minute. Let's look at this text and let's work our way into finding out what is this one thing that Jesus is referring to? As we read our text, we find that Jesus is traveling by foot from the region of Galilee in the north of Israel, some 73 to 75 miles southward toward Jerusalem. And before he gets to Jerusalem, he stops in a village, uh, we're told here, uh, and uh, in a corresponding passage, we're told what village that is. It's the village of Bethany. We learned that in John chapter 11 when we're uh, there reintroduced to Lazarus and Martha and Mary and that they live in the village of Bethany. Bethany is just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is traveling and He stops in this village. Now, think about this. uh, From their perspective, Martha and Mary, this is an unscheduled stop. It's an unscheduled stop. So Martha and Mary would have had little time, if at all, any advance notice to prepare and so think about that day and time. In our day and time, we can call up, we can call in advance, we can email, we can text, we can Twitter, we can Facebook, we can do any numerous things to send word ahead well in advance that we are coming. As a matter of fact, we threw your pastor's wife into a tailspin this week when we called a day early and said, hey, we've got snow coming in and we think it may be better if we come today rather than tomorrow. Tomorrow. And I imagine she experienced the, the, the fear and the anxiety that Martha experienced in this text right here. Think about it. If they have any advance notice, it's because someone has ran ahead from the edge of the village to tell Martha and Mary, Jesus is coming. It made a big deal when Jesus was coming to town, right? And so they might have a little bit of time to prepare and in that we we learn about Martha that Martha is such a person of deep responsibility uh that uh, that she goes into this uh, uh frenzied mode of preparing for Jesus it's believed that Martha is the older sister because uh, she is the one who is mentioned first. And in Scripture, if a name is mentioned first and they're always mentioned together, that's using an indication of the older one like James and John. We find Martha mentioned before Mary most of the times. And also that it says that she received Jesus into her house in verse 38. And so I want you to get to know Martha a little bit this morning. From this text and the other two passages uh, mentioning her, we can deduce that Martha is a type A personality. Let me just review that for you for a minute. Type A individuals can be described as impatient, time conscious, concerned about their status, highly competitive, ambitious, business-like, aggressive, have difficulty relaxing, I'm sorry, Pastor, I didn't realize it was going to be directly to you this morning. (laughs) The rest of you all can kind of just watch as I preach to your pastor this morning. Does that sound like him? It goes on. They are often high-achieving workaholics who multitask, drive themselves with deadlines, and are unhappy about delays. Anybody have identification with that this morning? Some of you. Some of you too proud to admit it. As we observe Martha in Scripture, we know this about her. Uh, She has a deep sense of responsibility. It's easy to pick on these type A people. (laughs) That's right. But but think about the good qualities here. Martha, because of this personality that she seems to display in Scripture, she has this deep sense of responsibility. She feels like she is the person responsible. She can't let that responsibility pass on by. She knows about it. She has to do something about it. It's a good thing because it gives her a strong compulsion to be a problem solver. Jesus is coming to town. He's been traveling. He's been out there in the wilderness, you know, and those disciples haven't taken good care of him. Jesus needs a nice place to sit and Jesus needs a warm meal and Jesus needs something to drink. And she's all concerned about the responsibility and she sees the problem and she attacks the problem and it's evidenced by her take-charge attitude. So you can imagine the flurry of activity in Martha's house in service to this most important guest. Some of you, like my sister-in-law, had guests who came to town this week. And you just, you worked yourself nearly to death getting ready for them. And uh, and let me brag on my sister-in-law a little bit here. Uh, she did amazing things for us in cleaning and spending hours cleaning a bathroom that we're just going to dirty up. And You know, taking care of things and making sure everything is in place and making her husband do all the projects he hadn't done for the last six months before we arrive. And, you know, the more important the guest, the longer list of things that need to be done, right? And we're pretty important if you didn't know. So it was a long list of things. Now, think about Martha. Put yourself in Martha's shoes. What if Jesus was coming to your house I mean, it would be one thing if you had a week's notice or two weeks' notice. I mean, you would remodel, right? You'd probably sell your house and buy a new house, (laughs) even if you couldn't pay for it, just so you could have it when Jesus got there, so He'd have a very nice place to stay. But think about that. What kind of work would you put into getting ready? And you type A's are already beginning to perspire. (laughs) Just thinking about this. Jesus coming to my house? So feel Martha's pain. Jesus showed up at her door. And all of a sudden she has a list of things a mile long and she could employ all 12 of the disciples and anybody else who was standing around trying to get the stuff done. And she's working away fervently. She is in a flurry of activity. And I have no doubts that Martha had good intentions. But as we're going to see, her good intentions actually caused her to miss out on the best part of having Jesus in her home. I mean, I just imagine that there are ingredients flying around in that kitchen. If they have cabinet doors, they are uh, closing and opening. And, and if uh, clay pots uh, clang, they're clanging in there. I mean, just think about it. Uh, they, kept, they kept meat fresh by keeping it on the hoof. And so you read in the Old Testament, somebody shows up, you had to grab a lamb and you had to cut it and you had to uh, butcher it and then you had to clean it and then you had to cook it. I mean, it was a process. It's not like you pulled it out of the freezer and defrosted it in the microwave. And threw it on the stove. I mean, it was a pretty big ordeal to get this stuff done. Uh, If you're going to bake bread, a simple activity like that, you've got to build the fire. You've got to have the woods. You've got to get everything heated up and ready to go. So imagine some of you ladies trying to get ready for Jesus to come to your house at a moment's notice how consumed you would be with all of that activity with good intentions, And the way the text reads, we find that as Martha is working away furiously, she's working herself into a fury. Because all the loud noises that she's making in there that are engineered to draw her little sister's attention are not working. You know exactly what I'm talking about, you type A women and men. Don't want to get myself in trouble here this morning. <laughs> Sometimes you communicate through noises, right? Not grunts and groans, but making of noises of activity because surely any decent human being would hear that I'm working in here and they would get up off of the couch and come in here and help me, especially when we've got company at the house, right? Because it's, just, it's, it's, it's not appropriate to yell when Jesus is in the house. And so she is getting herself worked up. And when she can't take it a second longer, she storms out of the kitchen and she marches right up to Jesus. Look at our text. Verse number 40. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord. Lord. Very politely, she starts out, Lord. But notice what she does next. She accuses Jesus of not caring. Dost thou not care? Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? She frames it as a question, but make no mistake, it's an indictment. It's an indictment. Now, think about that. What a... a, what a tragedy. She has Jesus in her home. God incarnate, the one who left his throne in heaven and laid aside the rights of his deity so that he could come and be a man and live as a servant and die as a criminal all because he loves us. And Martha is accusing her him of not caring about her and her activity in that moment. Now, we would really like to jump on the bandwagon and point our finger at Martha, but we know we're all guilty of that, don't we? Don't you care, Lord? Don't you care that I'm going through this? Lord, why is this happening? I don't understand. Why would you let this happen to me? And so we can sympathize with her. Uh, she frames it as a question, but we know she's indicting him. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Lord, don't you care? Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me alone? Now, ask yourself, where does that ideology come from? Where does it have its origin? Jesus not caring, God not caring. Doesn't it have its origin in the Garden of Eden? Wasn't it uh, first uh, spoken from the lips of the serpent, Satan? Who went to the woman and said, Hey, you know, can't you eat of the trees of, of the garden? Oh, we can eat of all the trees, but this one we can't eat or touch. Oh, that's because God knows that in the day you eat that, you'll become gods like Him. You understand? He's questioning God's care for Adam and Eve. That's where it starts. Shocking, isn't it? Because we just, we just get into these patterns sometimes and we don't think about where's the origin of this. The origin of questioning God's care for us is, has its roots in Satan. He wants you to think God doesn't care about your situation right now. He wants you to think that God is indifferent to what you're going through. He wants you to feel like you're all alone in this endeavor that you're in right now. And that he doesn't care that you're drowning and going beneath the surface and struggling to get air. He wants you to think that God doesn't care. And Martha played right into his ploy. Not only does she accuse Jesus of not caring for her, but in her manic state of mind, she issues, watch this, a command to Jesus. Look again, verse 40. Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help Me. Now, I'm confused because she started her conversation with Jesus by acknowledging that he is the Lord. That was slave terminology. That meant that if you have a Lord, you are a servant. You have no rights of your own. You are owned by that Lord. And that Lord tells you what to do. And she is calling Him Lord, but she is commanding Him what to do as if He is her servant. Frightening thought. What's even more disturbing is that I know it's happened in my own life. Well, Lord, if you would just do this in this situation, it would work out. You ever prayed those prayers? Oh, God, I'm asking you to help me. If you would just do this, this, and this, everything would be okay. Well, wait a minute. Who's the Lord and who is the servant? Martha is now in this dangerous position of trying to command Jesus what to do as if he doesn't know what is best. Jesus doesn't know what's best for you, Martha. You have to tell him. Jesus, you tell my sister to get in here and help me. Obviously, you, don't, you haven't thought of this. Isn't it amazing the Bible refers to itself as a mirror? And even though I'm a male living in the 21st century, I see my reflection in a female in the 1st century in the way that she's handling this stressful situation, the way that she's treating her Lord. But now I want you to watch this example of grace-giving that's demonstrated by our Lord in His response to her. Now think about this. If if a servant spoke to a master in that way, that master has the right to take them out. If you and I indict God... God would be fully justified in executing us on the spot. Would He not? I know God is loving that God hasn't done that, but I'm telling you, if we're following justification, we can say, if God is God and I am treating Him as if He is my servant, my slave, He has the right to execute punishment on me. He has that right, and it would be justifiable. But look at how He gives grace. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, you know what I hear? I hear the sweet tones of love in those words as the great physician diagnoses her problem. Martha, 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 you are careful and troubled about many things. I don't know. I don't, I don't have the inflection. I, I, I didn't hear His voice. But knowing my Lord, seeing how this goes on, I know that He's a grace giver. And I know that He's given grace to me. And I've seen Him give grace to His other disciples. And I believe He's given grace here to Martha. Martha, Martha, you, you're, you're, you're cumbered about many things. You're, you're careful about many things. You're troubled Earlier in the text, it said that she was cumbered about. To be cumbered about has the idea to be dragged all around. We would say it this way. I'm pulled in a hundred different ways. You ever been there? I've got this demand and that demand and this going on. I'm trying to cover this and that. And if you are a person of responsibility, you feel responsible for every one of those. And it's like juggling, trying to keep them all up in the air. And you're running from this one to that one to that just to try and keep it all together. That's what's going on in Martha's house. And Jesus says, you're careful, you're full of care, you are anxious, you are consumed with care, consumed with concern. I've been there, ever had a health scare? And you know that God is good and God is in heaven, but you can't stop thinking about what happens if those test results show something. It's consuming, isn't it? I've been there when our church was going through major remodels and it was like we were hemorrhaging money and there were bills that were due. And there was, there was no, I mean, in, in the plain sight of what usually comes in, there was just no way we were going to be able to cover it and do all of those things. And I remember struggling, trying to keep God in, in this position where I recognize His glory, but finding myself just consumed with care about this matter. It's life. It's what happens to us. And Jesus tells Martha, you are careful, you are troubled. That's such a graphic term that is used there. It's it's where we get our word turbid. It, It means to stir up sediment in a water and make it cloudy. And it pictures the fact that Martha is so emotionally stirred up right now that she's clouding her own judgment. Happens, doesn't it? As logical as you may be, as analytical as you may be, those emotions, when they get stirred up, will cloud our judgment, cause us to say and do things that we never intended to say and do. And he says, You are careful and you are troubled about many things, plural, many things. You are trying to focus on all of this stuff. Now, catch this important point. Do you realize that Martha never stopped to see what the Lord wanted from her? Do you realize that's absent in this interaction? Jesus is coming. My house needs to be ready. He needs to be fed. He needs something to drink. We need to do this. I need my sister to help me. I've got more than I can do. I'm overwhelmed. I'm struggling. I'm I'm drowning just trying to serve Jesus. But she never stopped and asked Jesus, "What do you want?" Man, that's a critical error. You see, because as I think about it, if Jesus was hungry, he could probably make it rain manna again if he wanted some bread. If he was thirsty, he could probably turn some, make some water come out of a rock and then turn it into wine. If he wanted to, he could pick up a crumb out of Martha's kitchen and break it in pieces and have 12 baskets of food left over after they got done eating. Right? Because he's able to do that, isn't he? She never stopped to see what Jesus wanted. She just simply assumed, I have all these things that I've got to do for Jesus. I've got Jesus coming and He's important. I want to take care of Him and I want to feed Him and I want to make sure that He's comfortable and He's taken care of. But she never stopped to say, Lord, what do you want from me? You see, because I suspect that if he's hungry, he could have gotten food somewhere else. If he's thirsty, he could have gotten drink somewhere else. But you know what he couldn't have done somewhere else? He couldn't have visited with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Maybe he just wanted to come spend some time with them. And in her hurry to try and care for all the things she thought needed cared for, she robbed him of that one thing. She never even stopped to see what her Lord wanted her to do. Her attention was actually diverted from Christ to lesser things. My, how often does that happen to us church people we got to do this got to do this got to do this got to do this and we get off running at full speed trying to do all the ministry stuff that we think needs to be done and sometimes we start without ever stopping to ask what do you want me to do lord what is it you desire from me if it's not all of this stuff all of this activity that Jesus wants from Martha, then what is it that is required? What is it that he requires of you and me? Well, it's at this point that Jesus divulges to Martha and to us the content of his short list. It's very short. Verse 42. But one thing is needful. One thing. One singular solitary, absolutely necessary thing. One thing. What is it? Well, it's the best part. Jesus said, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part. It's interesting, that language, good part, uh, it's intrinsically good. Part means it is uh, one among others. So there were other options on the table, but Mary chose this part, this part one. You and I need to understand there's always going to be options on the table of what we can do with our time, but we need to make sure that we choose the right one, the best one, the good one, the one that will amount to something and not be taken away. What is it? It's what Mary chose. Look back in the text to see what she chose. Verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Can you follow along with me for a moment? Can you, if you've tuned out, can you tune back in for just a moment? Mary is mentioned specifically three times in Scripture. I want you to notice something about every time she's mentioned. She's mentioned right here, right, verse 39. And where do we find her? She also sat at where? Jesus' feet. If you would look with me at John chapter 11. John chapter 11. If you remember, John chapter 11, the Lord Jesus and his disciples are traveling. They get word that Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus is sick. He's nigh unto death. Jesus tarries his going to them. And then they get word that Lazarus has died. And he explains to his disciples that this was engineered. This was on purpose. I did not go before he died because I'm going for a purpose after his death. When he arrives at Bethany, Martha hears about it. She comes running out and she says, If you had been here, he had not died. And honestly, from her lips, it almost sounds like a criticism. I don't know if it is or not. But Mary comes and says the exact same thing to Jesus, but it seems like it's a confession of faith. But notice this in John chapter 11, verse number 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell down at His what? Feet. Feet. Saying unto Him, Lord, if Thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. So, in Luke 11, we find her at his feet, listening to his word. In John 11, or Luke 10, in John 11, we find her at his feet, confessing her faith. Lord, I believe if you had been here, he would not have died. The third mention of her is in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 1, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. We'd expect that. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment, of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the what? The feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment do you realize every time mary is mentioned in scripture she's at the feet of jesus She's at the feet hearing his word. She's at his feet in her time of sorrow when she is in an impossible situation that she can do nothing about. She is at his feet giving a gift and making a sacrifice to him. But every time we see this character in Scripture, Mary, she is at the feet of Jesus. What is she doing? I believe she's worshiping. She's worshiping. Now, understand, I'm, I'm drawing a conclusion. and Let me throw this out there to you uh, just as proof text, and, and, and you won't take time to turn there. But Matthew 28, they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Acts 10, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Revelation 3, 9, come and worship before thy feet. Revelation 19, 10, and I fell down at his feet to worship him. Revelation 22, 8, I fell down to worship before the feet. What we find is that the one absolutely needful, necessary thing for this disciple Mary and for all disciples is that we worship him Now, look what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we never do anything. It's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that the one necessary, absolute requisite of every disciple is that they be a worshiper. Worship at His feet. Then you'll be ready to work. Let me show you this. I think this is so, so neat. And if I'm making a mess of things, your pastor will clean it up after I'm gone. It's, it's okay. We read about Mary in Luke chapter 10, verse 39. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and did what? Do you remember? Heard His Word. So Jesus, as His normal routine was, was teaching He was teaching. Jesus began teaching something midway or two thirds of the way through his earthly ministry that most of his disciples missed. You start reading about it in in the book of Mark and he starts telling them, I've got to go, I've got to be crucified, I'm going to rise again the third day. And he mentions that to them. It's documented three or four times. And then in Mark 16, when Jesus has rose again from the dead, the disciples don't believe, Jesus upbraids them for their unbelief. Why would Jesus tear into them for not believing? Because he has told them three or four times already, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise again. They knew. They could have known if they would have listened. Mary worshipped and she listened. And look at what she does. Look back, John chapter 12. Before you work, you must worship. Before you get to work for Jesus, you've got to spend some time worshipping Him. You see, because you may make the critical error of Martha of doing all this activity that is not as productive as you think it is. You may miss the mark by never asking Jesus what He wants, listening to what He has said. She listened to His Word back in in Luke 10. Now, then took Mary... Chapter 12, verse 3. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very closely anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus... Let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Get the picture Jesus is sitting at the table, and in that Middle Eastern culture, they didn't sit in chairs, they reclined on the floor or on pillows. And oftentimes their chest, their face would be towards the table. Their feet would be away from the table. And Mary comes in and she comes in with this treasure. Judas valued it at 300 pence. That's almost a a year's wages for a working man in that day and time. And so this this was an achievement of a lifetime unless you're wealthy to have this expensive ointment. And it was used for the high privilege of anointing somebody's body when they were buried uh, as as sort of a, a ceremonial embalming. And she comes in and she breaks it and watch her position. We know she's here, right? She's on her knees. But she does something that would have been absolutely shocking in that culture. Not only does she touch his feet, which was considered to be the dirtiest part of the body, In that time and culture, if you were a servant in a house and you had any tenure at all, you made somebody else wash the feet. You made the servant lower than you wash the feet. That was a disgusting job that was for the lowest servant. And Mary, instead of just washing his feet with a towel, takes her hair and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Does anybody remember what 1 Corinthians 11 says about a woman's hair? It's her glory. She gives her highest crowning glory to the feet of Jesus. It's beautiful. But why did she anoint him with this burial ointment? Jesus told us, leave her alone. Against the day of my burying, she has kept this. That idea of keeping it doesn't mean she just had it around the house. It means she was diligently preserving it. She knew that he was going to die. She had heard his word. And she was coming to worship at his feet and to use that precious spikenard to anoint his feet for the burial. How did she know to do that? I say it's because she heard his word back in Luke 10. She was at His feet. She was listening to the Lord's voice. She was sensitive to what He said. Do you understand how much goes on in the name of religion in this world today? All the activities. We could drive around this town and pop in at different religious organizations and see some of the uh, diverse means in which people worship the Lord and involve themselves in all kinds of activities. And I've seen Baptists do some crazy weird things too in the name of Jesus. wonder if that would change if we actually became worshipers. If we settled ourselves down at the feet of Jesus and we tuned in to what He was saying and our heart's desire was to adore Him and to love Him and to exalt Him. You know, that's what God's looking for. Jesus said, The true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Can I ask you a question? I don't want you to answer out loud, but I do want you to answer yourself. How's your worship? No, I'm not asking how often do you attend worship services. I'm not asking did you sing the worship songs. I'm asking, how's your worship? How is it? Are you at the feet of Jesus regularly? Does He still arrest your attention in such a way that you'll let some things pass on by because you're just enthralled by Him, by His love, by His beauty, by His compassion, by His depth? Oh, worship's a serious thing. Jesus told some People who thought that they were worshipers, that they were worshiping in vain, simply practicing traditions of men and not following the dictates of the Scripture. I don't want vain worship. I don't want to be an ignorant worshiper, as some were described in Scripture. I want to be part of that group that Jesus identifies in John 4 true worshipers. True worshipers. How's your worship? Have you been there? Have you sat at Jesus' feet? It has everything to do with the value you place on Him. What is He worth to you? What is He worth? Can I give you a call to worship this morning? Not one that I made up, but one that God put in His Word. The psalmist said it. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is God. Did you come to worship this morning? I believe you did. You showed up at a church for a worship service. But just showing up at the service doesn't mean you've worshipped. Have you worshipped? Have you bowed down at His feet? Have you looked lovingly at your Lord? Have you placed the right value on Him that He is worth more than any and everything else put together? Does He still arrest your attention in that way? Or has it lost a little value? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You for the way that it penetrates deeply into our hearts.